Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 19 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by the Mandolin Cafe, my favorite website, and also brought to you in part by one of the best places that I play gigs at, Prohibition. They've got locations in Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. I play there every Saturday and Sunday morning from 11 to 2. They have the best brunch on King Street. I say it every week because I mean it. So come and see me if you're in Charleston. I'm there every Saturday and Sunday. All right. Sharon Gilchrist is the guest. An amazing conversation. There's some great stories. A lot of uh, a lot of good tips in there as well. Uh, one of the things Sharon's got coming up in May of next year, May 14th through the 17th of 2020, is the Tall Pines Music Camp. And that's in uh, it's Camp Sierra, California. And I will post a link to that at mandolinsandbeer.com. And you can also get some merch there. And you should follow the playlist on Spotify, Mandolins Beer Playlist. I've got a bunch of new songs from this episode, along with songs that we've discussed in every episode so far. It's a pretty impressive, pretty impressive list of tunes there. Couple thank yous real quick. First off, I want to thank Chris Laum. I hope I'm saying your last name right, Chris, from Beaver Island Brewing. He sent me a care package of some incredible beers. Uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota is where this is uh, crafted with heart. And man, they were great beers. So if you find yourself in Minnesota, look up Beaver Island Brewing. And if you want to send me some beers, shoot me an email. You can go to my contact form at mandolinsandbeer.com. That's where you can reach me. Um, also, this episode, Sharon is a Peghead Nation instructor, and she's got a brand new segment coming up on, or module, I should say, coming up on Peghead Nation. I believe it's coming up at the first of the year. I don't want to say too much because she talks about it on the podcast. But thank you to Peghead Nation. If you're not familiar with them, uh, Peghead Nation's a streaming video course. They have mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. And you can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players, like Sharon, and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors. They've got Sharon Gilchrist doing beginning and intermediate mandolin. They've got Joe K. Walsh, who does bluegrass mandolin jam favorites and advancing mandolinists. Mike Compton, Monroe-style mandolin. Melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman. Chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish mandolin with Marla Fibish. And theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Well, when I read that list, there's only two of those people I need to interview, so... Got to get them on the podcast. The courses include high-quality, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes to play along with. The best part is if you go to pegheadnation.com, you get 30 days for free by entering the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. It's all one word, no plurals. And I also want to thank Don Sternberg and Frank Sullivan for a great night of music and then for dinner afterwards um in in decatur after their eddie's attic gig it was incredible i hope some of you got out there to check it out it was an incredible night of music so i hope you got to see one of the shows so thanks again to frank and don great great guys um hey in 2020 gonna be taking the show on the road here we're gonna be doing some brewery shows here um i'm gonna be starting to book so if you have any breweries you recommend kind of in the southeast for the early early months of the year i'm kind of focusing on the idea of the of the mandolins and beer show is uh, kind of like a hangout ahead of time where we can talk mandolins, try some beers. Everybody can maybe do a little mandolin sampling, check out different picks, talk about strings. And then my band will do um, a set that evening. So we're looking at booking some shows. If you got recommendations, I would love to hear them. Um, And that's it. Next week's guest, Dominic Leslie. What a great guy. He actually hooked me up with a killer brewery. I'm going to be hanging out at in Nashville here doing the podcast with Jared and Jenny Lynn in December. So great stuff. 
All right, y'all. Sharon Gilchrist, great podcast. You guys have a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Please be sure to subscribe. If you haven't done so yet, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. It really, really, really makes a big difference in the rating system. So have a great week. All right, and now I'd like to welcome to the Mandolins of Beer podcast, Sharon Gilchrist. Sharon, how are you today? Hey, Daniel. I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Great, great to talk to you. I'm been, you, you too. I talked to you a little bit ago, and I was, I was saying there's many people who have been asking, gotten a few emails asking to have mm-hmm. you on, so it's great to get you on here. So thank you yeah. so much for doing it. Thank you. Thanks hey, for well, having me on. Oh, of course. And um, yeah, uh, Peghead Nation has actually sponsored a few of these episodes, and you are obviously one of the you have two courses on there and and a third that is coming up here in 2020 that's right yeah, yeah. can you talk about that is this going to be like is this breaking news for the uh for Peghead nation <laughs> it, it it just might be i don't know if it's been announced yet or not i've been talking a little bit about it but um yeah i'm really excited um the course the upcoming courses so far i have a beginner mandolin course an intermediate bluegrass course and then um, this third course is one that um, I just developed, you know, through teaching private lessons mm-hmm. a lot and at camps. And, you know, one of the challenges in teaching at a camp is that you get so many different levels coming into one room at one time and trying to figure out a way to shoot down the middle or provide something that um, is going to be able uh, to apply to a lot of different levels, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so through, throughout all this experience, one of the things I've found that's most useful that, that seems to be like one of the biggest hits in private lessons in camps is just teaching a closed position fingering for one, four five chord melodies. Oh, wow. And, um, and so that it, it also uh, like some private students who would come to me and be like, man, I'm going to jams. I'm feeling good enough to be out jamming with people now. And how do I, I, I see all these people just being able to play over songs they've never heard before, no matter what the key is, how are they doing it? And I was like, well, this, this is what you need to know if you can do this. And cause a lot of those songs you're going to be playing at jams are going to be one, four, five. If you can get this going, you get a really solid foundation for being able to pick up melodies on the fly, harmonize them with double stops and then move them through any key. And so it's really funny. I've had a lot of people come to me with that question. I teach them this little pattern and, um, and then about three months later, they come back, you know, they have a lot of luck with it. They're doing great. And they come back three months later and they're like, man, you know, I'm just kind of in a rut now. Like, I, I don't know where to go next. I, I just play the same thing over and over. I'm like, do you realize that three months ago you couldn't do, you couldn't <laughs> join the jam? So <laughs> right. um, I feel like it's a really effective thing. And it's one of the most helpful things I've found in teaching. So I'm excited to build a course and um, share it with everybody. Oh, that's great. And you do private lessons as well. I do. I do. I do that here in uh, Berkeley, California, and I do it online uh, through Skype. Okay. And they can get through that information if somebody wanted to learn those tricks before 2020. If you, <laughs> if you had any openings, they can go to your website and... Absolutely. And, okay, cool. And you've been doing a lot of camps, it sounds like, the last year? Uh-huh. Uh, well, you've been doing um, camps for years, I think, but this, this past right. year was a big focus. Yes. Yeah, I, I feel like that has become a focus in the last few years. And um, this next year, uh, 2020, my plan is really to 
to focus, <laughs> kind of let teaching be the main professional focus so that I can have some time at home to work on some musical projects that I've been wanting to put together for a while. So cool. camps are going to be a big thing in the next year. And, um, you know, I get a lot out of doing the camps. Um, just, it, you know, anytime I'm teaching, it makes me think more and more about what I'm doing and how to do it more efficiently, how to communicate these ideas always, you know, solidifies the ideas more with myself and, uh, and meeting the other uh, staff members, you know, like getting to jam with some of my heroes and meet new players out there. It's it's just a really um, fruitful thing for me. Oh, that's great. It, and, and we'll get to some of the players you've played with. Your, your The people mm. you have played with is a is a quite the impressive list <laughs> of, mm. <laughs> of names in this genre of music. Nice. Um, you know, yeah, that's great. And the, the other great thing I think is – for these camps is is players like you and and Mike Marshall. I mean, the music industry has changed so much in the past right. few years, where you know, nobody buys albums really any longer, and mm -hmm. it's it's like another great source of income, and it's a way for you to connect with people, um, mm -hmm. just like music would. Like buy, somebody's buying a record, except it's a lot more of a personal experience. So I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a cool thing that's come about. I feel like in um, and one of the things I do like about it in terms of, you know, it is another avenue of income for professional musicians. But in that in that regard, it's a moment where you're actually just so involved in the process of music mm -hmm. and talking about it with people, playing with people, passing that on. And um, it's fun to do that with other people because so much of that in my past experience has been alone at home, you know, <laughs> sure. and and not having um, like I didn't have a lot of mandolin players to learn from mm -hmm. or where I lived. And I wasn't exposed to hearing how mandolin players thought about what they were doing or how they approached it. So um, I think that's one reason it's kind of become a passion of mine is, OK, what what did I need to hear that would have made this uh, sink in a little easier, you know, mm -hmm. Um so uh, that's a cool thing that's happening out there right now. That's awesome. So let's let's. What got you into mandolin? Let's go back. That's a great segue <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to growing yeah. up with mandolin. Well, um, let's see. I got. I was lucky, very very lucky, to be born into a musical home, very musical. And um, my mother is a pianist, and she has always played uh, piano at church. So I grew up in a Baptist church with my mom playing piano. And so at home she would be playing piano a lot. Mm. And at church, um, she really loves to sing and has a beautiful alto voice. So she'd always be belting out these harmony parts. And so very early on, I was just really um, enthralled with that. It just caught everything in me. You know, I just got consumed with hearing her play and her sing and these harmony parts and I was just dying to make music just and I was begging for uh, piano lessons and um that went on for a little while and then one day my dad came home from work and he after dinner that night he passed out one of every instrument of a bluegrass band oh, wow. to everybody in the family. I don't know where he got the instruments, but um, <laughs> that's what happened. And um, so my sister, who's a good bit older, she got the banjo, the big instrument. And then my brother, who's older, got the guitar. And my dad got the 
guitar. My mom got a fiddle. And then um, I got the littlest instrument because I was the littlest kid. And so I got the mandolin. And, you know, I could have cared less what instrument I got. I was just so happy to make music. (laughs) (laughs) I've just been waiting for my whole life to make music. So um, that was how it started. Wow, that's so cool. Now, was your mm-hmm. um, was your dad like a bluegrass fan? Yes. Um, my dad, I would say he loves music uh, maybe more than most musicians I know. He's just <laughs> a fanatic about it, so passionate about it. And so he and my mom are from the South, and they both ended up in Nashville and went to college there and were going to the Grand Ole Opry on their dates on Friday nights and they ended up in Texas for my dad's work. Yeah. And, um, they were going to bluegrass festivals already before I came along. And so I was just kind of born into this world of going to festivals all summer long. And so I got that exposure. I mean, we, we got to see all the, you know, the first generation folks. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was exposed to that quite a lot. Monroe and Ralph Stanley, Lester Flatterell Scruggs, Jim and Jesse. The Osborne brothers, the Goins brothers, Joe Val. Um, I mean, and then, and so we got to just really see a lot of that lineage and then kind of the explosion of it becoming more progressive with the Bluegrass Album Band and Doyle Lawson and um, Ricky Skaggs and all that stuff. Like I just got some, some great exposure right off the bat. My dad did not play, but he was so passionate about it. And he actually ended up becoming president of what's called the Southwest Bluegrass Association, which is the big bluegrass association in Texas, and eventually promoted concerts. Um, Like I had a winter concert series and a nice theater and a festival. And and he put on some house concerts um, at our house. We had a barn out behind our house. And this is kind of before people were doing house concerts, but he just figured, oh, well, you know, we'll give these people another gig as they're traveling out through Texas. And um, so then we got to meet some of some of these people that, um, you know, we had seen at festivals and really admired. And so I am super lucky. I just really um, pretty much got to eat, live and breathe it. And that is um, that is amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. <clears throat> wow. I owe a lot, a lot to my mom and dad for making all that happen. Yeah, that's great. That's well. Mm-hmm. So then, when did you decide? Like, you started playing, and you're like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna form a band. This is, this is my, this is what I want to do." Yeah. Um, let's see. So 
I I think I first like got went when I first got serious about mandolin. I I took some piano lessons and then mandolin had a really early start with it and then came back to it when I was like seven, about to turn eight, and then um, took some lessons for a couple of years locally from a banjo player and a guitar player. Um, and there was a little music store in the next town over um, called the Pick'em Parlor in Grapevine, Texas. And my brother and I were taking lessons there. And I'm not sure if it was one of the parents or a teacher at the shop that thought it'd be cool to put some of the kids' students together and create a band. Oh, cool. But that, yeah, that happened when I was um, nine and and then, Nine. yeah, <laughs> uh <-huh>. wow, <clears throat> yes. So that was that. Um, but so I was playing mandolin in that band um, from nine until sixteen. Holy and, cow! Um, mm -hmm. And it became a pretty, you know, like a full time thing. By the time I was in eighth grade, we were rehearsing two nights a week and playing three nights on the weekends during the winter. At a, we had a regular. Um, gig at a restaurant through the off season and then there was festival season and we were out every weekend of festival season we do festivals like texas arkansas oklahoma and some in the southeast as well wow made it up to the northeast one summer yeah what kind of uh what kind of tunes were you guys doing at that point like when it first started out you know when... oh that's a great question <laughs> um <laughs> we did um i remember uh, you know, I remember our first rehearsal where they were teaching us songs. And um, I know that I got, we all got one song to sing lead on. And oh, I, I know I got on and on. On and on, I follow my darling and I wonder where she can be. On and on, I follow my darling and I wonder if she ever thinks of me. What, you know, we were we were doing some of the traditional stuff. Um, Blue Night was one of our favorite tunes. Yeah, and great song. lot from say hot rise um the bluegrass album and just you know all the all the bands that were out there we were just trying to copy that material and um and you know we'd do some old gospel stuff my dad was a big fan of that and he'd kind of mine some of those songs and bring them in like where the soul never dies oh yeah um, yeah when you would say that you were like learning these songs were you guys pretty specific like learning were you learning the parts like were you learning the tim o'brien solos from hot rise were you sitting down woodshedding them or did you kind of have you guys just kind of learn um, the form and then 
Yeah, I think we, you know, gosh, who knows what was going on? Um, we, <laughs> we we learned the form, I'm sure, you mm-hmm. know, the core changes. Sure. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know, when I was like 9 to 12, I'm not sure what I would have been playing on those. But right. I remember when I was like 11 to 12, somewhere in there, um, I almost forgot about this. We went up to Boulder, Colorado one summer. We took a week off. And this was our big vacation, which we didn't do vacations. We just went to festivals. And um, we went up to Boulder, Colorado, just our family. And my brother took lessons from Charles Sattel for one week oh, wow. on guitar, obviously. And I took mandolin lessons from Tim O'Brien for a week. Oh, cool. And yeah, so I'd have a two-hour lesson every day. And and my parents just kind of made this deal with us, like, okay, if we're going to go do this, you know, whatever you learn that day, you got to learn it that night. So we'd come back to this KOA campground and um, practice. I remember practicing about four hours every night there. And I'd come back and be able to play whatever Tim had showed me the next day, you know, to some degree. And um, I remember him teaching me Nellie Kane and... Uh, maybe the melody for Land of Enchantment. And then like the very end of the week, he gave me a folding scale in the key of A and, um, you know, just the basic um, major scale, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, two, that pattern. um, I hadn't, I mean, I think I had heard that, but I hadn't played it. And there was something about connecting that dot for me of, okay, here's this thing I've been practicing, this pattern. But now it's broken up and it's kind of messed with. And there was something about that moment that I really feel like I I couldn't really say what it was. But Mm -hmm. after that, I came home and I was able to improvise. Oh, cool. And all of a sudden, I was taking breaks on stuff I, you know, like not a planned break. And I could stretch out after that. And um, Yeah, so that was influential. And I, you know, definitely tried to pick up some solos off of records Mm -hmm. and um, certain licks, maybe. I think that would maybe be what happened more for me. I might pick out a part, like I'd learn a solo, but maybe one part of it would really stick. And then I would be able to use that in my solos. Cool. Yeah. How did you go about doing Mm -hmm. that? Did you like, did you like try to transcribe them or um, try to get into Uh, the, uh, I mean, your solos are great. So any, uh, any information I can glean from how you learned them, I think help everybody here too. (laughs) Well, um, at that time, you know, I I was learning off of LP, so it was just kind of sit down with the record and do, you know, take the needle back Mm -hmm. and take it back and do it over and over. And I had some cassettes as well. So, you know, just hitting rewind, rewind, rewind until I could hear it well enough. Um, I didn't, 
I don't think I realized that you could slow down a record on the record player. So I <laughs> wasn't very hip to that concept. So um, some of it was probably pretty hit or miss looking back on it. And I, I did not know a thing about theory or like that really didn't come into my experience or education um, in, in my time, you know, um, in my teenage years, it really did not, it, it was all by ear and just a sense of, musicality and phrasing that I was trying to pick up on kind of intuitively, mm-hmm. I would say. So after, after the, the Tim O'Brien, obviously the hot rise influence, mm-hmm. was there any other album that just knocked you out that you were listening to? Let's see. Um, specific albums. Well, you know, there, there were probably a lot. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, hot rises, um, radio boogie was a huge, player around our house um and my brother being a guitarist um he was super into tony rice you know yeah and so (laughs) i think i probably listened to tony rice more than i did mandolin players and and i i was super into it as well so we were listening to you know all the bluegrass album band stuff and um just on repeat and one record that I could say my brother and I both just wore out I mean literally wore the record out would be uh, Skaggs and Rice My heart is sad and I am lonely for the only one I love when shall I see her? Oh, no, never Till we meet in heaven above Oh, bury me Oh, so good Right? <laughs> uh, so to this good. day, yeah, I think it's one of the best records to give people Like, you know, in, in terms of bluegrass harmonies and the mandolin everything about that record is just yeah it's timeless uh, yeah exactly (laughs) yeah that's a great one so Mm -hmm. you went to you went to college then for music as well i did yes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. was that so was your intention did you want to just did you want to do a band thing or were you like i think i want to do i want to do more than just band stuff because you you've done some composing which we'll yeah we'll get to but was that what was your thought when it came time for that move well, you know, to be really honest about it, I did not really want to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my mother's in education and, you know, she and my dad in their generation of our families were the first to their generations were the first to go to college. So they were really um, <clears throat> they really wanted me to get a degree. And um, whereas I was already playing bands and doing it in my mind, yeah. so I would just wanted to keep doing that. And, um, you know, I wanted to be free to start traveling more and all that. But, um, so I kind of was like, well, if I'm going to go to school, I'm going to do music. But right off the bat, that kind of set up a bit of a problem because mandolin was my instrument. I, I already played upright bass, but I didn't ever at that point take it past basic bluegrass bass playing. So mm-hmm. I couldn't major in music on the bass. I didn't, I didn't have another instrument besides mandolin that I could go to school on. And at the time there were no colleges where you could study mandolin. (laughs) Sure. 
And so um, I, uh, we looked around and Belmont University mm-hmm. in Nashville was doing this kind of innovative thing at the time. I think before that, in, in music school, you could do classical music or jazz. And um, Belmont was trying to provide um, more genres. They wanted to make a degree where you could study more genres. And I found out about that. Oh, and uh, a woman who is from the same area I grew up in, um, Tammy Rogers King, who plays fiddle with the steel drivers. Oh, yeah. Um, she went to Belmont. And um, so I talked to her about that. And she she really was super helpful to me and um, basically talked Belmont into having me come as a mandolin major. And they, they were absolutely they were interested and then they weren't going to do it because um, I guess for that degree, I needed four semesters of classical private lessons on my instrument. And they were afraid there weren't enough. There wasn't enough classical music on mandolin to fill out those four semesters. And Tammy wrote them a nice letter with a discography of all the compositions for mandolin. And so they accepted me after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It was really amazing. Um, Yeah. So that got me in. And and it was an interesting experience because there was no mandolin teacher there at the school. So I um, studied jazz improv. My private teacher was a saxophonist Mm -hmm. uh, named Jeff Kirk, who I believe now is – he's definitely head of the commercial music program at the school. And I just, I loved studying with him. He is an amazing musician, just such a passionate player and great player and really passionate teacher. And, um, I, it was so fun for me to go there. And, um, I just was soaking up these new influences and, um, that, you know, I might not have wanted to go to school, but once I got there, it was just this whole new world. Um, my family, we only listened to bluegrass music and church music. So um, that I think it had to do with being in the Baptist church. We didn't listen to anything that had drums in it. So um, this was a whole new world for me. And yeah. <laughs> I, just my ears and my mind, were, I was just completely mesmerized and, um, you know, it kind of stopped me in my tracks and really changed my course having that experience. Yeah. And if people, if people listening, this is a mandolin po- podcast, but you are an incredible bass player as oh. well. Thank you. Oh yeah, man. Your tone, especially that harmonic tone revealers, that album is one of the best sounding albums that's come out in, in the past couple of years. And just, I mean, Thanks. obviously the mandolin is, sounds great, but she's the bass mm-hmm. is just, uh, it's massive sounding. so great yeah yeah we had to work to get that sound um it was in a new studio um 
up north of Seattle. Um, and the, the Sage, Sage Brush Studio, Sage Studios. And, um, we were invited to kind of be a guinea pig for the room because it's this huge room and this great recording engineer who's recorded a lot of the albums out of Nashville, um, in the last probably 10 or 15 years, Eric Jaskowiak, he was, he was brought into the studio to kind of, uh, you know, get familiar with how it worked because it's such an unusually large room. And, um, so as it turns out, an upright bass in that setting is, not easy to capture. <laughs> yeah, <And> I bet. <laughs> so we had to pull out some um, stops to really try to get the tone focused mm-hmm. in that setting. And um, so I'm, I'm glad you think it came out all right. Yeah, it sounds great. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so after school ends, you finish up there, you got your degree. Mm-hmm. What did, what was the next step? Uh, just kind of a light bulb went off of like, you know, I, I had always wanted to live in New Mexico and I was like, ah, I'm kind of at a loose end. I could just use this time to sneak over there and be there for like a year or something. And, um, so I went and did that, but that lasted for 11 years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And when that happened, um, I landed there. I didn't know. I only knew one musician there and not very well. And I picked up the mandolin again and started playing out solo and um, and got back into bluegrass and formed a band within that first year that kind of had a really good run for a few years. Mm-hmm. And What was that band? Um, that band um, was called Mary and Mars. Oh, okay. And um, we... We had a good run. We would do these big loops of the Southwest and Northwest and um, eventually got picked up by a booking agency called Madison House and uh, out of Boulder, Colorado, um, who books, they work with string cheese. Oh, yeah. Incident. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was interesting because they were just booking us at all these venues that, um, again, off the West Coast area and at the end of our time as a band, we ended up at a festival with a lot of the bands I'd been seeing posters for at all these venues we were playing. And a lot of them were playing at this festival. And I was just, it kind of occurred to me that we had become part of a scene and (laughs) that I was like, Oh, this is a whole scene. And Oh, this is, Oh, this is a jam band scene. And I had no idea. And, um, I wasn't really familiar with jam bands so much because I had such a traditional bluegrass background. So, right. um, but that, that was pretty short lived, but that definitely kind of got me more in the national field again, mm-hmm. uh, in the national somewhat of a bluegrass field, making connections in the bluegrass scene again. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So then from there, when do you? Because mm-hmm. you, you, this list of players on your on your website is, it's ridiculous. I mean, you've got um, Daryl mm-hmm. Anger, Peter Rowan, mm-hmm. and Tony Rice, Scott Nygaard, mm-hmm. John Reichman, um, uh, Bill Evans, uh, just Mike mm-hmm. Marshall. It's it's yeah. like, and you played. I mean, you were in the uh, was it Rowan and Rice? Was it the quartet? Rowan and Rice Quartet? Is that what they called it? That's right.
And so, and it's almost yeah. like a weird full circle thing because you're you and your brother are listening to Tony Rice to being yeah. in a band with Tony Rice. It was really weird and, um, and great. And also, um, you know, my dad being such a music fan, Peter Rowan is one of his favorite singers. So I would say out of all the music in our house that we listened to a whole lot of those two artists. So it, you know, it was pretty amazing for me to, to be hearing those sounds. If I'm on stage, like those are the voices and the, you know, the guitar sound or in when we made our record, the first time I heard the playback and heard my mandolin in the mix with them, it was a very, very strange. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine how amazing. Uh, Yeah. What is it like to, um, I mean, everybody knows that Tony Rice is such an incredible lead player, but his Mm -hmm. rhythm playing is also, I've had Mike, Marshall on here and John Reichman, and they both talk about playing while soloing over Tony Rice's rhythm. So Mm. what what was that like? Yeah. You know, I still feel like, like I'm still absorbing that. And whenever, whenever I play, that's still my kind of my touchstone for like, how do I want this to feel? Or mm-hmm. how do I want to approach things, or what's the frame of mind I want to be in? And um, but that—that's—that's that's my muscle memory for time is playing with Tony. And on the shows, um, I always asked for his guitar in my monitor, like more than anything else, because he, you know the subdivisions were just so—it's just like clockwork. And as long as I could hear that, I knew exactly what was going on. But it's it's an interesting thing playing with him too because it's not your straight up bluegrass rhythm um and so when I first joined the band that was one of the big um learning curves for me was how do I want to how do I want to participate in this ensemble rhythmically and it took me a while to to do that or to figure it out because it wasn't a traditional bluegrass sound Mm -hmm. And to be really honest, outside of playing with Mary and Mars, this was the first bluegrass band I had played with in 12 years. Wow. So um, it was... <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> right? No pressure. Um, but so it was kind of like, okay, I'm in, a, I'm in a bluegrass band, but if I really pay attention, this is not bluegrass per se. Mm-hmm. This is not a banjo roll with a mandolin chop. And, you know, it wasn't the traditional roles for the instruments. So, um, and so... Tony, one of the things he said to me is like, you know, if you know, if you ever hear my guitar in the studio and solo the rhythm track, it's not your typical, you won't be able to tell what song it is. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, he, he was telling me that basically what he's pulling from and trying to sound like and emulate is a jazz piano. And so he's doing all this kind of like, if you think about how a jazz piano might comp underneath an ensemble Mm -hmm. like these hits underneath and these interesting chord clusters and color tones coming out and so it's not you know it's a bit asymmetrical in in terms of the phrasing the shape of the phrasing and how they're laying in the measures yeah and and then you've got Bryn Davies who is playing bass with us who would her bass lines were just um you know very intimately wrapped around 
they were weaving in and out of Tony's line. So she's listening to him and they've got this whole melodic conversation going on in the rhythm section. And then Peter singing these beautiful songs with these great chord changes and harmonic motion in those songs is already really cool. So at first there was so much happening that I felt I needed to just chop and be simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then once we were in the studio and I, there was something for me about being in the studio in general, every time I'm in the studio, it will change something about my playing, just hearing back what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that was particularly true in this instance. I started hearing it back somehow and being able to start interacting more with Tony and Bryn and moving my chord voicings around. And um, it was uh, really exciting. It To me, it was more of a jazz approach in terms of how we were interacting in the rhythm section. And I was trying to always be mindful to not busy it up too much and distract from Peter's lyrics or vocal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was easy to get a little caught up in what we were doing, get excited <laughs> and <laughs> run away with that. But I tried to you know, be sensitive to that. But that was a point for me where I started using um, chord inversions. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I really um, didn't know what I was doing at the time, mm-hmm. even though I'd been to music school and I had studied chord inversions, I really didn't get it. And um, so I sat around at home and was like, what am I doing here? And uh and then I kind of figured it out. I was like, oh, this is what they were talking about in music school. Only in music school, I learned it from a guitar player. And in guitar, the way he taught it to me, the he was wanting me to use all four strings. Oh, gotcha. And so that, you know, in my attempts during college, that's really cumbersome to the left hand and doesn't move around so easily, which in my mind, the point of chord inversions is the motion that you get and this kind of fluidity in your backup creating counterpoint lines. So, um, I just in college decided I just must not be good at that, you know, and I, I tried and tried and I couldn't get it to be very fluid. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I was doing with the quartet was just taking off the higher string usually and just doing a three string approach. And then, I kind of started listening more. I met Mike Marshall and was talking to him about it. He's like, yeah, mandolin players typically are doing three strings when they're doing chord voicings and, or chord inversions. So that was a, a really cool takeaway from working with that group. That's amazing. One of the many effects that <laughs> came about <laughs> yeah. from, from that experience. There's a, there's an energy um, playing with Peter and Tony that's, both of them um like I always felt like Tony was like my description of his playing is like this thunderstorm like you you know how you hear a storm brewing mm-hmm. you kind of hear like the the rumbling of the thunder and it's dark and you know at some second the lightning's gonna strike <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the storm is gonna break and it just it was like always these build-ups and just this like but the, with this energy and electricity to it you know and um, and then Peter is just the master of being in the moment, reading the crowd's energy, mm-hmm. responding exactly to that in the moment, and um, you know doing the songs differently every night. Oh, and cool! Maybe changing the time signature, changing the key. Oh, wow! You just never knew 
what was coming your way. And so, you know, I had to basically, I always felt like Bryn and I just had our eyes on Peter or like it was just watching and responding and it kept the whole thing super fresh and creative. And it was cool because, you know, I couldn't be too in my head about my own playing, you know, (laughs) which helped when I was standing on stage with Tony Rice, you know, and for the first time (laughs) and and being compared to him as as a soloist and all that good stuff. Well, you, you, uh, you did just fine. (laughs) Such a good album. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then, um, and you also were on, you played, uh, did you play on Daryl Anger's album as well? I did. Um, I played bass on a recording he did called the E and Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With Joe K. Walsh. Yeah. Joe's great. Mm -hmm. Man, I know. Such a fan of Joe's and, um, you know, his his solo records are have been some of my favorite records that have come out in the past number of years. And I actually feel like some of what he's going for reminds me of Tony Rice oh, in wow, terms cool. of, um, you know, all the work Tony did with Choosing Great Songs by Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. Um, and having these songs with great chord changes, great lyrics, and then having this amazing instrumental treatment of those. So uh, uh, I love what Joe's doing for sure. Yeah, me too. His stuff with uh, what, what I love Grant Gordy's guitar playing as well. And he's, yeah. Plays a yeah. bunch with him. It's just mind bendingly good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Courtney Hartman um, oh, was yeah. on that record on guitar and she's that was just a super fun project and um we i think we were in the studio for two days and just tracked everything pretty quickly and um super fun to be part of it and i love playing bass and playing bass with players of that quality is just a big treat when you just get to hold down the groove sure listen to all this magic happening around you that's amazing. And speaking mm-hmm. of uh, amazing, the uh, Harmonic Tone Revealers album, which we kind of touched on a little bit. How did that Thank come you. about? Because John Reichman was was a guest also as well, and and mm-hmm. a, another amazing player that you found yourself in a band with as well. Right. Um, well, so you know, I moved out to the Bay Area in 2012, and. I started meeting John maybe at camps out here and through this um, tour that happens every fall out here called the California Banjo Extravaganza, where I play bass and John plays mandolin. And Bill Evans, a banjo player, runs this tour and brings out two other banjo players. So a lot of banjo music. And (laughs) (laughs) John and I are in the band every year. Um, And so we started playing together there. And then Scott Nygaard and I had done some duo shows together out here when I first moved out. And John and Scott decided they wanted to do some duo shows because they had recorded on each other's records in the past and they wanted to kind of bring some of that back to life. 
And so they wanted a bass player and thought of me. And um, we had a like one weekend set up to do some shows together. And and about the week before, um, I remember one of them saying, calling up and saying, well, hey, do you think you could maybe play mandolin on this one? And and do you think you could sing on this? Maybe you could sing some songs and why don't you do some of your own songs and tunes? And so all of a sudden it became uh, more of a trio instead of just a support bass role. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yes. And then uh, you have, so on your music page, there is a Sharon Gilchrist original music section here. Uh-huh. So yes. is that is that available? Because I tried to track that down today. Right. And so, um, and those are great tunes. So what, what Thank are, you. yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are, what are those? For? What's up? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, good question. Um, they have not, I've, I think the tracks that are on there are mostly things that I demoed at one point when I was going to head in and, um, what I was working towards doing a solo record, um, after working with Peter and Tony, and I was in New Mexico um, still. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of um, got sidetracked, basically. And and I, I think I didn't really feel like I had the material quite together that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. But that was the start of it. And I really do want to do a proper recording of those songs and have some other songs that I'm hoping to complete in the coming year. Cool. And yeah. So ho- hopefully... Um, there will be a presentation of those before long. Yeah, they're great tunes. So yeah, that's awesome. I would have uh, honestly, you. I wouldn't have thought they were demo versions um, ah, after listening thanks. to them. So <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So you do a lot yeah. of these camps, and um, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot. We have all ranges of players um, who listen to this, and um, I, I know one thing that I get emails from every now and again, and this seems like a perfect one is somebody, and I, cause I just gotten one, another one this weekend was a, a listener was like, um, maybe you could ask every now and again, what are some newbie mistakes that you see made a lot that would, <laughs> that would, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it seemed to be common things that, that might be easy to address in, you know, in a broad. Mm. Uh-huh. Well, you know, um, one of the things that I see, that I think is a direct result of all this wonderful educational material (laughs) that is Mm -hmm. out now. Mm -hmm. I see a number of people kind of getting ahead of themselves, you know, um, uh, you know, I had somebody kind of say to me one time, like, Oh yeah, I've gone through your course on, I've gone through Mike Marshall's and I've gone through Joe K Walsh's and, um, and I was kind of like, well, goodness, why are they here for a lesson? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and, you know, and then, you know, when it, when it came time to jam, I, you know, in the jam situation, kind of the basic fiddle tunes weren't really ready to jam with people. Mm-hmm. So um, I, th- I think it's kind of easy to sit at home sometimes alone in the practice room and not have a real sense of where you are. So I think, getting it out there and playing with people is so important Absolutely. And, and and especially in terms of just getting people to continue down the path of learning. Cause I think you got to stay inspired and um, having a context to play music in is just going to help, help you keep going, mm-hmm. you know? 
so that's one of the things. And then um, I, I think, well, one of the other things I see a lot um, that I always cringe a little bit when I see it because I I feel like I had this experience myself is people getting into bands right away. And maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, but some people get put in these positions of having to play faster and more than they are ready to do. And that's when I find people will develop a lot of tension in their playing Mm -hmm. and, and then it becomes a habit and then they're locked into this band situation. And if they're making any money off of it, they're really locked into it. And then it's really hard to stop, you know, stop in the tracks there and rework the technique. And um, so, yeah, just this sense of kind of getting ahead of oneself. I think it's easy to do. Sure. And I do think, um, I do think it helps to go to somebody who has, who has put, who has had to think about it, about technique, especially, Mm -hmm. and, and can articulate it. Um, I know for myself, any lessons I had growing up, again, like it was more from somebody who was really a banjo player and a guitar player. So there wasn't any real advice about technique on mandolin. And um, I did have some workshops and the occasional private lesson and, uh, you know, a few few people that I really admired along the way that I got to sit down with one on one. I remember them saying to me. there there's something something with your thumb you know there's something (laughs) with your thumb and I never I was like gosh what does that mean I (laughs) I have no idea and um it took me until it was actually right before we went into the studio with Peter and Tony um we had a month off and I didn't know what we were going to record so I didn't know how to practice for it and I was you know (laughs) really really wanting to gear up and I just thought well one thing I know is I'm not happy with my tone on my E string and I cannot have that go down (laughs) on a record (laughs) and so I um I just sat in front of a mirror I pulled out a mirror and I sat there it was literally about six hours a day and I just started I had no idea how to go about it um but I started trying to pick it apart. And, um, I had talked to Mike Marshall a little bit in that year and he, he confirmed that there was something weird about my thumb. (laughs) There was some extra tension (laughs) and he was somebody who had the ability to articulate more of what was going on. And he was like, you need to flatten out your thumb. I had like a super, um, you know, a hyper extended thumb and um, where I, I pushed in to my thumb. So I was really pushing into the pick really hard. Mm. And, um, and, you know, my fingers were kind of splaying out kind of with tension, I think to counterbalance the tension at my thumb on the pick. And so, um, Mike was like, yeah, you got to just kind of relax the thumb and let it flatten out instead of pushing into it. And so I started with that, just starting like how to, what happens if I start flattening out the thumb and I was looking in the mirror and, and then I had this other um, revelation looking in the mirror of that. I had all, you know, this was already decades of playing. I had sat at the top of the bridge always, and I never moved off of the top of the bridge. Really? Yeah. So I swung out from the top of the bridge 
which meant by the time I reached over to the E string, okay, we're getting really mandolin geeky. Here. Yeah, my, I love it. So I'd swing out and hit the E string and basically I was hitting for one thing at a really different angle than I was hitting on all the other strings, mm -hmm. but also I had so much tension on the pick and then I was all right. My wrist was so turned out, like kind of, you know, to the top part of it, I had maxed out the range of motion from the wrist. So by the time I got over to the E string, I didn't have any leverage to swing the wrist, you know, yeah. and I would get kind of tense in the wrist. And then I was just laying into that E string, getting this really brittle tone. And I was having trouble with my speed, particularly on the E string. So yeah, I just had this moment of revelation where if I let my forearm get involved in my technique and take me string to string, then I'm getting the same pick angle on every string. And then my wrist can do the finer picking at the string. Oh, cool. And yeah. Yeah. So I had to come up with some exercises to get me out of the wrist mm -hmm. doing everything for me. I had to teach my forearm where the strings were. And so I, I developed a lot of exercises during that month that um, I still teach and um, helped me get out of that habit. And I really was able to change that habit in that month. And, um, and I, I look back on it and I think it was, I don't, I just wasn't, I, I don't know. I think it was kind of a, a naive move to think of changing my technique the month before going in to record with those guys. <laughs> but, um, but once I started, I was like, I, I knew I was on the right track. Yeah, and my tone opened up, and um, a, a lot of good things came from it. You're right, and I have that note written down about your right hand, which is interesting that you had. Uh, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you worked so much on it because your right hand is so um, it just it, it's it's mobile. Again, we were talking before the interview, mm -hmm. like when you go from like single notes to double stops and tremolo, it's just the, how smooth mm -hmm. the it's just like. Uh, just a really smooth movement. Uh, 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 people should just go to YouTube and watch some videos of Sharon playing live. But your right hand is—you could tell you put so much work into it because it's a—it's great. Well, thank you, thank you. I feel like I've—I have done that almost to a fault at this point, where um, <laughs> you, I've really got to make myself shift gears. I will always work on the right hand, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I want to keep that going. I need to work more on my string changing part of that and really there's a lot there i kind of want to crack the nut on in the year ahead as well as phrasing i just feel like i almost shifted my focus away from the phrasing part of playing just because i had so much work to do on the right hand and then i got super into that and that's kind of my favorite thing to work on yeah which also carries you into working on timing because that's a lot of right hand work and that stuff has been really captivating and now i'm I feel like got to make myself shift gears back into <laughs> thinking about the phrasing parts. I, I just got to tell you, it's so motivating though, to hear someone again, like you and, and, and doing these podcasts and in uh, these interviews is it's never ending. Uh, even the great players like yourself are like looking forward to what they're working on next year, you know, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's inspiring to, to hear that. So that's great. Well, yeah, absolutely. And again, all these all these ideas that you're talking about in these exercises, if anybody wants to learn these, they can go to your website and, and mm -hmm. they can actually take lessons from you to get these ideas. So highly recommend yes. it. So that's great. Let's talk <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about your gear? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you have you, a Gilchrist? I do. Uh, oddly it's, enough. 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I discovered Gilchrist mandolins when I was a kid. And we go to Nashville um, every summer. My grandparents lived there. and We'd go to Gruen Guitars. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time I played one, um, just loving the sound of it so much. And I was really young. and I, But I was, you know, I never forgot that. It just sounded like a chime. The notes just sounded like chimes to me. And, um, I, you know, I kind of got it. And then I found out it was my same last name, (laughs) which, you know, as a little kid, that was just so cool. And, um, so it kind of really stuck with me that that's what I wanted to get someday. And, um, so I I ended up with a 91 Gilchrist F5 that was custom made for someone else who was not really a player and they ended up selling it. And, um, because it, uh, I think because they weren't really a player, they, they made some interesting choices in the customizing of it where um, they chose uh, to make the body a little deeper hmm. than the standard F5 body uh, depth. And and the the F holes, um, Gilchrist told me, are actually S holes. They're they're really thin. They're they're much more narrow than the typical than the standard F hole size. Oh wow! And it's X brace, so it it creates this bassier sound, mm-hmm. and which I really like um, a lot. It it works really well in a lot of situations. When I'm in a straight up bluegrass setting, sometimes I wish it had a little more bite to it. But um, there's there's just a character to it that I. I seem to not be able to let go of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also probably part of you now, you know what I mean? You kind of, yeah. you got your sound coming out of it as well. Nobody's going to pick it up and ever make it sound the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been 25 years with that mandolin. Oh, wow, so. good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Do you have any others that you, uh, that you uh, use or any different styles? Well, um, let's see. I have an octave mandolin um, that's a busman that I, also, I had custom made in when I was living in New Mexican, uh, sorry, New Mexico. Bill Bussman is a maker down in uh, near Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And uh, he makes these beautiful mandolins, and I got an octave from him. And I, I do have another Gilchrist that um, I worked with um, Stephen Gilchrist to have him build me something that was different than the one I do have that had a little bit more of that mid-range bite that I sometimes miss online. Mm-hmm. And so I have another S5 from him. Um, and it does, it has that bite and it's a totally different character and um, it's, it's super cool. And I, I haven't quite been able to get used to it. And I took it out on a gig right before I was going to go on the road with Daryl Anger and do some shows. And I got on the mic with it and it was interesting. It was just like the things I'm used to, the sounds I'm used to going for when I go for them, other sounds would come out that I wasn't expecting. And, you know, I, yeah. I was, it, so I, I switched back to mine. So I felt good on those gigs with Daryl and I, I kind of keep ending up in that situation of just wanting to be comfortable on my gigs with my mandolin and, have never fully made that switch over, but I love having it. And, um, oh, I bet. Good to have another mandolin. Yep. It's, a, it's amazing how those little things, though, I mean, are, well, they seem like little things, but they're really big things <laughs> when, you, oh, yeah. when, um, when you're so used to something and something's ingrained in you. 
you know, mm-hmm. even things like picks, which is a segue into what type of yes, picks do you use? Yes. <laughs> um, I use, uh, I currently use a blue chip pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the SR50. SR50. Oh, okay. Which is kind of like, I, I think it's somewhat based on the Golden Gate pick. Yes. But what I love about it is that the, like this, this, if you, I think of it as having like two, the shoulders, the top of the pick that are less rounded. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the tiniest bit of a, a point to them, like a suggestion of a little bit of a point. So you get that roundness of a round cornered pick, but with, uh, I feel like I can catch the string a little bit easier. Yeah. And that's kind of kept me in the blue chip pick because I haven't been able to find that in another pick. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. And uh, what type of what type of strings? I am currently using Diodario, um, the 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 newer one that they came out with maybe a year or two ago, the EXP seventy four CM. Oh yeah. Which has the it's it's more like a medium heavy gauge on the D and G strings, and then the A and E strings are the heavier gauge, and uh, you know like an eleven point five on the E string. Mm-hmm. Which I tend to like, especially on my mandolin. For some reason, on that, I'm always looking to get a little more uh, volume on the E string. So that's been good. I used to use um, J75s forever, and that's one of the things that came out of being at a camp where I was on a panel with Herschel Sizemore and Mike Compton. Oh yeah. And everybody asked us what we were using for strings and picks and all that. And it turned out I had the the heaviest strings, the heaviest gauge strings, the highest action, the, <laughs> the thickest pick. And <laughs> um, and it was kind of, you know, it was enlightening for me to see that these two players that are playing really, you know, the hardcore Monroe style, like putting out, you know, like really raw digging in, you know, mm-hmm. we're not doing that. And um, Mike talked to me after the workshop. He's like, why are you doing that? You don't have to do that. <laughs> oh my um, gosh, that's so, so funny. Right. So I started experimenting around with it and that's where I landed. And I was surprised I ended up liking the EXPs. Um, I didn't think I would, but I, and I tried to switch back just to plain J74s, but they felt kind of taut to me and under the pick yeah like just a little bit more taut than the exp so i mm-hmm. just went back to those well just a few more questions for you here and we can wrap it up so uh one of the questions i always ask on the podcast is if you had 10 minutes a day to pick up your mandolin what would you work on today okay um well me personally i would definitely go for right hand work um and I have a, an exercise that I do that's a tremolo exercise um, that I learned from Katarina Lichtenberg that after I had already changed my technique, it, this like really helped me with a kind of a finer point about learning how to stay out on the surfaces mm-hmm. of the strings and um, not swing the pick any wider than you have to. So it just really works on that refined wrist motion and gets my timing going. Um, that's how I start every practice session. And if I don't get to play much before a gig, um, 
like the times I've had five, 10 minutes before a gig, I definitely start there. And then I might go into double stops in the left hand or into a scale. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of, I've developed this thing where I'll do a scale with eight strokes per note um, at first. And, you know, so the left hand's kind of slowly warming up to my right hand if I've already warmed the right hand up. Sure. And then I'm just really listening. If I have eight strokes per note, I can really listen and hear is that same pitch sounding like one pick stroke, basically, you know, or my down and up strokes sounding even. Right, right. Um, and then I'll, if that's feeling good and sounding good, then I'll kind of go down to four strokes per note, two strokes per note, one stroke per note. And by then kind of the left and right hand are syncing up more. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a tool I'll use if I'm learning kind of a new fretboard patterning thing or like an arpeggiated, uh, like a folded arpeggiated pattern. I'll start with more strokes per note just, and then kind of get the left hand eventually synced up to one stroke per note. Cool. That's awesome. The other thing I would say is uh, um, if somebody wanted to be, I mean, I think you could do a number of these 10 minute things, you know, for whatever you're focusing on at the time. Uh-huh could be a tune played slowly or double stops. Like if you just will, for me, if I take double stops around and outline a chord progression of a tune that I'm working on um, all over the neck, that's such a good one that I'm getting my right hand going and I'm starting to find areas of the neck that might sound good in certain parts of the tune. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah. And then we talked a little bit ahead to tell you, not a big beer drinker, so I've got a different question. <laughs> okay. Um, um, if you were to play a bluegrass fiddle tune today, which tune would you play? Whoa. <laughs> uh, of all the tunes out there, what yeah. one would I play? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Okay. Okay. You surprised me here. Um it's so my new favorite oh, question, gosh. by the way. I caught Don Sternberg or Sternberg, sorry, off uh, off guard uh-huh. as well with this one. He's like, "Whoa, man!" <laughs> what would I play? Um, oh, you know, generally I look for something with a groove. Like, I don't. I like to dig into stuff that's got a groove to it. Yeah. I it might like one of my favorite ones for that is Dusty Miller. Um, and then lately I've been into, um, Denver Bell. It's just such a cool tune and, um, you know, it goes across all the strings and it, you know, it's, uh, changes keys in the B part. It's, uh, it's not the easiest tune in a lot of ways. And so I like to keep that one in practice in case it comes up in a jam. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. No, uh, no, like 
scared looks when a song gets yelled out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've had that, you know, that's one that doesn't come up that often. So, um, it, I'll, I won't remember all the cool Kenny Baker parts if I don't keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, I bet. <laughs> yeah. He's got some yeah. parts for sure. Yeah, right. That's, right. That's awesome. Well, thank you yeah. so much for doing the podcast. This is a great conversation. Yes. Well, thanks for the doing this podcast too. It, it's just putting such good material out there. I've really enjoyed hearing how other mandolin players think about this because again, growing up, I, I didn't really hear people talking about it. And um, so it's nice that this is out there for people to, to listen to. Oh man. Thanks. That's exactly my intention. So I really appreciate it. Cool. <laughs> So there you have it, Sharon Gilchrist. Great interview. Um, be sure to go to mandolinsandbeer.com. You can see all the links about the things we talked about. Go to SharonGilchristMusic.com. Again, the link will be on the website. Next week, Dominic Leslie, y'all. Take care of yourselves. Talk to you next week. Cheers. <laughs>